Okey-doke. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell at this very moment. World leaders are meeting in Glasgow, Scotland, at the United Nations Climate Change Conference known as COP26, which implies there have been 25 cops already at the crime scene. That is climate change, and little to nothing has been done to stop the ongoing and worsening crime of global warming. COP, in this case, stands for Conference of Parties, as in those countries that signed on to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. These are the alleged world leaders, including the world's wealthiest nations, the same nations that have benefited the most from climate change, have profited the most, and have contributed the most greenhouse-causing gases leading to global warming. Meanwhile, the countries that have contributed the least to climate change, like Haiti, Honduras, and Somalia, they're suffering the most. Sure, these world leaders have gotten together dozens of times in the past and made plenty of promises to contribute tens of billions of dollars, which was reported in the establishment news media as historic contributions. But those promises went completely unfulfilled. And instead of funding a fight against climate change, these wealthiest nations have built walls funding border security far more than any attempts at mitigating the worst effects of global warming. Not that that should be surprising when you consider the same CEOs who sit on the boards of fossil fuel companies sit on the boards of security companies that protect not only borders, but also oil company installations. And don't be surprised if those same CEOs are also at Glasgow this week, or at least keeping a very close eye on it. And when it comes to the billions that were promised to be contributed to the developing nations that have been the most affected by climate change, the billions have come in the form of loans, turning those already devastated economies deeper and deeper into debt. In a few minutes, we may or may not learn how the wealthiest nations are responding to climate change and what that means for our not-so-far-off future when we speak with Nick Buxton, maybe, possibly, co-author of the Transnational Institute report, Global Climate Wall, How the World's Wealthiest Nations Prioritize Borders Over Climate Action, part of TNI's Border Wars series, of which Nick is a co-coordinator of research. Nick is an experienced communications consultant and works as a publications editor and future labs coordinator for the Transnational Institute. He works actively on issues of border politics, climate change, militarism, and economic justice, and was co-editor of the 2015 book, The Secure and the Dispossessed, How the Military and Corporations Are Seeking to Shape a Climate-Changed World. Nick is founder and chief editor of Transnational Institute's flagship annual publication, State of Power. His published work includes Politics of Debt, Indignity and Defiance, Bolivia's Challenge to Globalization, and Debt Cancellation and Civil Society in Fighting for Human Rights. You can follow Nick on Twitter, at Nick Buxton, and you can find out more about Nick at his website, nickbuxton.info. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Wednesday, so producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, how have you been? Things have been pretty good. I had a funny little uh, uh, experience on over the weekend. What was that? <laughs> I was driving through uh, uh, Humboldt Park in Bucktown following a car that had some advertisements on it. Okay. And the advertisements were for a driving school. Okay. And do you want to take a wild guess at what the name of the driving school was? <laughs> no, I have no idea. Nova Driving School. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
And as we all know, Nova in Spanish means don't go or doesn't go. It was brilliant. That is brilliant. That is brilliant. It would be even better if it was like Supernova driving school. We really can't go. My home was invaded by cockroaches, and Monday it was invaded by an exterminator who sprayed poison that was dangerous to humans and animals alike for approximately 90 minutes. In preparation of this assault on pestilence, every cabinet, cupboard, and closet in our kitchen and bathroom needed to be empty. And wow, do we have a lot of stuff in our kitchen and bath cabinets, cupboards, and closets. We found a 2005 National Geographic with the cover story, The Next Killer Flu. Can we stop it? Again, that's from 2005. We also found... It was a topic that actually we were discussing with Mike Davis back in 2005 here on This Is Hell. We also found something neither of us remember acquiring, and what a timely find it is. An issue of Wired Magazine from January 2010 with Alec Baldwin on the cover, accompanied by the headline... Headline... Fail. Screw-ups disasters, misfires, and flops. The cover promises stories of failure from, in order, Alec Baldwin, Bill Clinton, Larry Ellison, Mike Tyson, and more. Alec Baldwin's story of failure is called Stay in the Game, The Fall and Rise of Alec Baldwin. No word on if Baldwin will be staying in the game following his most recent misfire. But more importantly than cockroaches, exterminators, my home being unnavigable, and misfires. Richard, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, okay then. No, I did it wrong. <laughs> okay, then you come up with a good question from hell. Oh, very good. I liked your second reading of it much better. So, uh, did you figure out, is this person who's trying to join us actually Nick Box? Yes, and it's having problems. So, maybe we'll try a different uh, platform to get a hold of them. Sweet. So, give me another Yeah, I mean, Yeah, I got like, uh, let's see, about six minutes of script here. So, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio, or you can email chuck at this is hell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's Wednesday show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff judges a costume contest. Hmm, I wonder where that costume contest was. I wonder if he had to go farther than the doorway of his home to judge that costume contest. Richard will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with the Transnational Institute's Nick Buxton on the global climate wall. Again, the question from hell is, okay then, you come up with a good question from hell. Okay then, you come up with a good question from hell. This is all in light of Alex being very upset at the lack of responses to last week's question from hell. I've got breaking news. Last night when I came over to feed the semi-feral bar cat Mel at Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, I found out that the website Chicago Eater is coming over here to the bar to do a story on, no, not the bar, no, not the radio show, but on Mel, the feral bar cat, which is exciting in other news, other breaking news. I heard this conversation on the way home from feeding Mel. I can't believe he's getting an article in Chicago Eater. And Pete isn't, I'm not, Carrie's Lounge isn't. But Mel, the bar cat is. So I heard this conversation on the way home from feeding Mel. Two elderly women were walking down the street ahead of me, both using canes and mutually helping each other to walk, like leaning on each other. That's when one said, 
That's what makes us different. I don't drink with pills. The other replied loudly as if having trouble hearing. With bills? The first yelled, No! Pills! That's breaking news. We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Jess and Richard and Alex do, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. If you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me, chuck at thisishell.com. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, with shows beginning weekdays at 10 a.m. We are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple times a month, we can work within your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. This position does come with a living wage. I know, it's kind of amazing. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com. And we got some responses to our call for new board operators or remote work. Caitlin wrote to us at chuckatthisishell.com saying, I am a police 911 dispatcher. I have a long-standing deep moral issue with having collected a paycheck as being part of that system for six and a half years, but it's hard for me to find something that I'm passionate about to move forward with considering late-stage capitalism. I love your show, and my face lit up with a smile when I heard at the end of an episode that you were looking for someone to do something like this. Thanks for your time, and I hope you have a happy and fulfilling day Caitlin. Caitlin, thank you for reaching out to us. I'm so sorry that you had to be a police 911 dispatcher for six years, and I hope that we can get you out of the position that you're in right now and get you in the position of being a board operator here on This Is Hell. We also got an email from Robert on doing remote work saying, Hi Chuck, I'm here to help. I have a computer, weird skills, and time. Let me know. Robert. Okay, I'm intrigued by the weird skills thing time and computers I think everybody has but weird skills well not everybody has a computer but weird skills that's the part that we're interested in again if you are interested in being a board op like Caitlin is or doing remote work with his weird skills like Robert is email us at chuck at this is hell.com and we'll go from there Richard do we have an update on our guest we have him uh yes I we're gonna have to go in cold as it were okay. or hot I guess and, I don't know and see how, what the sound is yeah, like exactly okay So, coming up, how the wealthiest nations are preparing for climate change without addressing climate change. We'll also tell you what's happening on our exclusive Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash thisishell, which is happening on Friday morning, as it always does. And we'll have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, okay, then you come up with a good question from hell. Okay, then you come up with a good question from hell. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell world leaders in wealth and world leaders in contributing to climate change are meeting in glasgow at the u.n climate change conference known as cop 26 the hope is these nations and their leaders will get together and make an international agreement to stop the worst effects of global warming some of which are already taking place but when these nations see the worst outcome of climate change being migration not rising coastlines or temperatures or worsening storms or more extreme weather and how all these things may devastate say our food supply or their impact on the spreading of viruses it's hard to be optimistic about any meeting of the wealthiest in addressing global warming 
here to help us have a better understanding of how the wealthiest nations are preparing for climate change and, more importantly, how they are not. Nick Buxton is co-author of the Transnational Institute report, Global Climate Wall, How the World's Wealthiest Nations Prioritize Borders Over Climate Action, which is part of TNI's Border Wars series, of which Nick is a co-coordinator of research. Welcome to This Is Hell, Nick. Hi, Chuck. Thanks for inviting me. So the report begins the world's wealthiest countries have uh, chosen how they approach global climate action by militarizing their borders. These countries, which are historically the most responsible for the climate crisis, spend more on arming their borders to keep migrants out than on tackling the crisis that forces people from their homes in the first place. So did the wealthiest countries become the wealthiest by being the most responsible for climate change? And do they still benefit from continuing contributing to climate change? Because I'm trying to just trying to find out if there are any disincentives for these countries to stop contributing to climate change. Well, that's what we wanted to look at. We wanted to see whether, um, whether the countries that are most responsible historically for climate change, I mean, we've, we've got to look at the main countries that have contributed to the crisis that we're in. Um, how are they responding to it, and where are they prioritizing their money and their finance? Um, and one of the big promises that came out of the Paris Agreement, which was kind of praised as a historic agreement in 2015, was that the, the richest countries said, we're not only going to reduce our emissions, but we will also uh, support those countries who are really at the brunt end of the crisis. Um, and we're going to support them in two ways. One is to mitigate as in reduce their emissions, so we're going to provide technology and refinance to do that. And we're going to help them to adapt to the climate change that's happening. Um, and so there was a promise to mobilize $100 billion a year in finance. And in a sense, you have the richest countries, and this is really the heart of what the crisis is, is that the richest countries who, who have caused the crisis are not the ones who are facing the biggest costs and the poorest, the, mon- the v- most vulnerable countries who... who played no role in the crisis and yet are are facing all the consequences in sea level rise with islands disappearing with hurricanes um, and cyclones hitting countries like bangladesh which just don't have the infrastructure to cope um, with the costs and so this is where we wanted to look at really are we are we responding to that um, with adequate climate finance Um, if not how does that compare with where we are putting money and we decided to look at borders because in a sense that really crystallizes the issue because one of the big stories um, in, in, in a lot of the discussions is that climate change is going to cause migration, um, it's, it's going to cause displacement. So are we helping countries um, deal with that to tackle it themselves or are we just building walls? And unfortunately the story that, and it's budget speak more than rhetoric, um, where we put our money shows that we spend twice as much the richest countries on, on building borders and immigration enforcement as we do on supporting the poorest countries to cope with the impacts of climate change. Those promises of contributions to fight and mitigate the worst aspects of climate change, those are reported here in the establishment news media in the United States as historic agreements. People were saying that this has been an amazing uh, set of negotiations and that they have actually come to conclusions that will lead to mitigation of climate change then those promises go unfulfilled. How much of the problem is the way that the establishment news media covers things like the Paris talks in that they cover the original promises, but they never follow through on seeing if those promises go fulfilled? 
I think I think that's a big part of the picture, Chuck. The Kyoto Protocol, for example, said we we committed to reduce emissions by this much, and and richer countries were to play a bigger role than poorer countries. And um, by the time you had Paris Accord, it was all came down to voluntary contributions. So not only do you have this kind of weakening of of commitments, it's now a voluntary commitment. And we also, on top of that, have broken promises. The richest countries are saying, well, we haven't, okay, we've broken our promise. We haven't produced 100 billion a year, but we're getting closer. We're now at about 80 billion a year. Um, but when people have actually dug into the figures, that they see a lot of this money that's been promised is not new money. It's over-reported. Um, sometimes it's even bizarrely going towards paying for um, fossil fuel projects. So there's, there's a famous one where Japan has promised climate finance, but it's actually to fund uh, to fund a coal power plant um, in one of the countries. And the reason why they say it's climate friendly is because it's going to be slightly less emissions than a normal coal plant, but it's still very much a, a polluting coal plant. So, so really, we do need a kind of critical analysis of what um, what is below the promises and what's actually been delivered. And, and it's, um, I mean, Oxfam, for example, showed that really the promises are only about a, a f actual delivery is only about a fifth of what the, what is promised or, or and reported as delivered. The seven nations that are the wealthiest nations that have contributed the most to climate change, that are also the ones that are uh, securitizing their borders more than, more, far more than they are addressing climate change, are the United States, Canada, the UK, Germany, France, Australia, and Japan. But what, you know, because this is what everybody is always talking about here in the United States. But what about China? China is producing far more coal than any other nation there and will continue to contribute to climate change. Is, you know, China militarizing its borders? Or countries like, you know, India, which produces the second highest amount of coal, are they securitizing instead of financing the fight against climate change as well? So over time, um, so the most... So in that sense, that's why these, uh, the U.S. has a particular responsibility because it's developed its whole economy and become the richest economy on back of fossil fuel development and has had that role really particularly since, uh, really since the beginning of the 20th century. So it's had a whole century of development based on that. Um, countries like China and India um, are much more recent um, carbon polluters and they're, they're only now starting to kind of develop the, the economies that match the fossil fuel production they produce. So there's a difference there in terms of historic and current responsibility. Um, and, so, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. You know, China, uh, and the other thing is, of course, people blame China, but China has, um, has a vast population. So if you look at uh, tons per capita, an average American produces about um, 20 tons of um, carbon dioxide. Uh, uh, the average Chinese person now produces about nine. Uh, so there's a difference that you've got to keep in mind, firstly, the population difference. Um, and and, and, that, and that's, that's part of the picture. And, and then they're also just starting to be, uh, they've also got high levels of poverty, which are only now starting to address. So certainly going forward, they have an increasingly important role to play. Um, but up to now, um, really the historic responsibility lies with some of the richest countries like the U.S. In terms of whether China and India are starting to militarize their borders, there, are, there is evidence that that, is all, that trend is also happening. As countries become more and more wealthy, um, they, that this seems to be a trend that the richest countries then start to 
uh, rather than tackle the underlying causes elsewhere they, and, and globally, they start to retreat behind walls and play a much more uh, aggressive nationalistic position. And I think we're seeing some trends like that starting to happen in India and China as well. And India now has, a, has, a, has an increasingly militarized border against Bangladesh. Um, the question is, is this a strategy which is either humane or even rational in the long term? Um, and that's, that's really what our report was saying, that it makes much more sense for us to be investing money in actually tackling the causes of displacement rather than militarizing the consequences. Um, and, and that's just not a rational position. It's also a, a, a moral position because the higher and more militarized balls we are building, the higher the death toll that we're seeing. Um, the Mediterranean now has become one of the world's largest med, largest graveyards because the European Union is no longer trying to find safe ways to deal with migration and legal ways. Uh, they, they're creating a, an armed border, which means that people are taking more and more risky ways just to try and find a way to survive and to, and to live uh, and are dying in the process as they, as they go through the Mediterranean. So, so this is, in my view, that's a future that it's a very bleak future if we're going to take that as our main response to climate change, that we're going to just barricade ourselves against the consequences. The report finds that seven of the largest emitters of greenhouse gases, again, the U.S., Germany, Japan, U.K., Canada, France, and Australia, collectively spend at least twice as much on border and immigration enforcement as on climate finance between 2013 and 2018. Canada spent 15 times more, Australia 13 times, the U.S. almost 11 times more, and the U.K. nearly two times more. So, Nick, if all these wealthy climate change contributing nations, which have and continue to profit off climate change as well as building border security, if they all spent just as much on climate change as they did on the militarization of their borders, how much difference would it make in addressing climate change? Wouldn't that still be far less than is actually needed to truly address global warming? Well, we, if we look at they, they spent um, these richest countries spent thirty three billion. So that's a third of what's needed by the whole world to pay for the promise of of um, Paris, which was to raise 100 billion. Um, and the other part of this picture is that many of these um, many of these the spending on borders is also going to companies who are very much part of the military industrial complex. And there we're talking about my, even much bigger figures. You know, the mil- global military spending was $2 trillion uh, last year on military spending. So, so I, th- I guess one part of this is that border spending is, is, is increasingly, is one dimension of an increasingly militarized approach uh, that the richest countries are, are taking. Um, and climate change is increasingly becoming part of that agenda. Um, I, I was on a conversation with you, I think, a couple of years ago where we talked about this, where really national security strategies of the richest countries are increasingly looking at how to militarize there and build up the military in response to climate change. Um, and so, so, again, it's part of this picture of, of militarizing the consequences rather than tackling the causes. If you put the money spent on borders, you spent the money on military uh, towards towards tackling climate change, uh, then I think we could make much bigger headway and much bigger uh, chance of success. Instead, what we have is we are moving to, as many people are saying here in Glasgow, a, a three-degree world. So that's three times three times what we're currently at, and we already see the consequences at one degree. So. So, so this, that's, it's a very dangerous and short-sighted approach to be taking. 
The report finds that countries with the highest historic emissions are fortifying their borders, while those with lowest are the hardest hit by population displacement. Somalia, for example, is responsible for 27 ten thousandths of a percentage point of total emissions since 1850, but had more than one million six percent of the population displaced by a climate-related disaster in 2020. So why are the countries that are contributing the least to climate change suffering the most? Well, one of it's partly uh, an accident of geography that, that actually the, some of the places that are warming the most um, are in some of the poorest countries. Um, and so that's been, it's been called the kind of Tropic of Chaos by one author, the kind of between the Cancer of Capricorn um, and the other, um, the, one, the other one escapes me right now, but uh, the ones that, uh, that parallel the equator are being particularly hard, hard hit um, by climate change. But of course, the other one is just about uh, vulnerability and infrastructure. If you don't, it's always been the case that a disaster or a flood in, in a in, in, a, in a very poor country with very little infrastructure will have much more catastrophic effects and then a richer country that can that has the kind of capacity whether it's whether it's the equivalent of um, um, you know the emergency services that can respond or just the infrastructure that can cope with some of these things um, so so that's 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 why a lot of the impact really hits it's a, it's a question of vulnerability it hits hits the poorest um, and we have a, a level of vulnerability now that um, people who are already living on subsistence lifestyles, um, uh, when they face on top of that climate effects, there's only so long they can deal with it. And that's what we're facing, in, particularly in Central America right now. There's a whole region of the, which is, is become known as the kind of the dry zone. Uh, where where farmers are just you know you can cope with one bad harvest but if you have five or six har- bad harvests in a row then eventually um, you're you're forced to make some very difficult decisions. Most people most people still will travel within the country. Very few people travel across borders if they can help it. Um, but so you have increasing rural to urban um, migration. Um, but eventually some people will also say there's no, especially if you've got other contributing factors like violence or gang warfare or criminalization, they'll, they'll, they'll move to, they'll decide to make the much more desperate thing of, of traveling across borders. Um, and so that's, that's why we have this, it's really a combination of, of, of a long-term systemic injustice combined with vulnerability. Um, and when you add climate to that mix, um, then it's forcing people to make much more difficult choices than they've ever had to take before, which includes moving home and family to different regions. But those who oppose immigration here in the United States, they their narrative is that all these people are coming from Central America to the United States to take our jobs away, to work. They're only coming here to make money and then to leave. That the major driving force is for people to get jobs here in the United States. And always, they say, take jobs away from Americans. How much is, is migration from Central America right now driven by climate change? And how much is that erased from our narrative here in the United States? Well, climate is one of the, one of the factors. I think there's a few things to say here is... Um, is, is why are people being forced, I think it's always important with these things to go to the root of the problem, why are people being forced to move? Some of that's um, due to climate change, but some of that's also due to historic 
historic inequities and historic policies, including ones pursued by the United States. So the United States, particularly in its so-called backyard, um, Central America has played a, a very destructive role for many decades, um, initially supporting uh, supporting um, dictatorships there and right-wing insurgent movements. Um, uh, then later, the drugs war, which has played out um, with with very destructive consequences, militarizing police, leading to the emergence of kind of criminal gangs, which have become more and more powerful. We've even had gangs from LA of people who've been deported, who've gone back to places like El Salvador and fueled new forms of violence uh, and leading to new migration. So there's a role that the, the US has played. Now, most so that's one part of it is we have to think about the causes and there too the United States um, has some responsibility and, other, and, and some of the other richest countries and the next thing is, is to look at where actual people move like I said most people move internally most people move to my neighboring countries so the, this story that everyone has come to the US is actually not true um, if you look at the top 10 countries hosting refugees and migrants um, that the United States is not among them um, I think Germany is the only wealthy country among them. So actually most refugees and migrants um, end up going to neighboring countries. Um, and some of the biggest hosts of migrant, migrants are, are quite often quite poor countries. Um, and, and, and I guess the third thing I would, I would say here is, well, um, at some point um, we have to think what, is, what are alternatives as I think cross-border migration will increase with time. As, as my climate change has a bigger impact, um, but what's our response? To, what, what, what options do we have there? Um, and I think the two options: one is a is a very deadly militarized option, um, or the other one is finding um, ways to facilitate migration, which is safe and legal, um, and encourages um, and actually looks at what the best ways, firstly, to support people. Um, to to not have to leave their home if they don't have to. So more more aid, more support, um, better trade deals, and so on. Better development strategies that are done in collaboration with countries in developing countries, so people don't need to leave. Uh, if we put the money in borders instead of and actually helping people who are displaced rebuild their homes within their countries, that would make, be a much more rational strategy. And then those who then do come to the U.S. that that, that we support. We support them, and we we support them also supporting their communities back home. Um, and that's uh, otherwise we're going to the only strategy really one is of building bigger and bigger walls and bigger and more deadly ways of stopping people come. Um, at some point, that kind of fortress mentality breaks down because um, it's it's not really a solution to the problem. All it is is a is a wall against the problem. And so we really need to think much more. Strategically, we need to think much more holistically about the whole issue of migration in a time of climate crisis. A war against the problem. So is this uh, the military-industrial complex's response to climate change? Is this how, I mean, because that, you know, as you point out in the, as you uh, point out in the report that you co-authored, that, the you know, there's this uh, sense that uh, we do have a political choice in this matter. But when it comes to the military-industrial complex, it often seems like that's kind of out of our control. So is this uh, securitized borders, is this a militarized, is this the way the military responds responds to go to war against migration? I mean, what's wrong with the idea of going to war against migration? 
I think that's what we are. That's what we are seeing, and, and it's it's really interesting if you go back to 2003 and the first reports that came out around climate change and security, the national security do- documents, whether it was in the U.S. or Europe, they start to paint migration as a threat, as an emerging threat. Um, and this, and of course, um, I think we're going to see much more of that this this year. Biden has had done. President Biden has done a whole bunch of initiatives around climate security, and each one of them names migration as a threat. So I think we're seeing as as the war on terror changes shape or and moves on in some ways, um, or at least is not in the top of people's attention as it was for for a couple of decades. Climate change is going to become seen as the new threat. And it's really important to understand that behind this is not just um, the kind of national security apparatus that is is always looking for threats. And there's also a very powerful industry that is keen to that has has made huge amounts of money in the last two decades, particularly since the war on terror um, began, and is now and is now using climate change to to argue for more military spending, for more border spending, and that's something that we see really clearly with this um with it and we saw in this report that actually quite a few of the of the big military and and border spending firms have a lot of power within uh, the corridors of power and a lot of influence Uh, they are lobbying constantly for um for increased spending on borders they are raising in climate change as a threat uh, so they're part of driving driving this narrative. What was also interesting to find is that many of these same border firms also provide services to the fossil fuel industry. So we have a real nexus between big oil and and the big military as well. So, for example, Chevron contracts with G4S, one of the big border security firms. It, 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 it contracts with Leonardo, one of the one of the big European military firms. We see ExxonMobil with contracts with Lockheed Martin. And they even, and it's not just contracts. What we find is there is often a lot of um, people sitting on each other's boards, and there's now a real sort of nexus with with someone who's on the executive board of Exxon Mobil, also being on the executive board of Lockheed Martin. And those kind of links are happening. So I think we see this, uh, this, in a sense, both of these, both these industries, um, for different reasons have a reason for there not to be climate action, for us not to tackle the causes of climate change, because they can make a lot of profits, um, either by perpetuating the crisis or profiting from the impacts of the crisis. Um, and so I think that's a really important part of this picture. It's not just around policies or attitudes or people feeling that we have to be strong on migration. It's also around an industry that sees a lot of money to be made from this. So why is there more money to be made in addressing the consequences of migration than in in addressing the root causes of migration? Why is there more money to be made in securitizing our borders than it is to do the humanitarian thing and help out people who are being forced to move by climate change? I don't know if there's more money to be made, but it's certainly true that that industry has... Um, is is the one that's in the most best and strategically most powerful place to profit from it, um, and it's only become more uh, it's only become more profitable um, since 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 the early 2000s. I mean, the, the both security and and military firms have have boomed um, since the end of the Cold War, and particularly since 2001, of course, since 9/11. 
so they're in a really strong strategic and political place now to to really to really profit in a way that um, those uh, other companies um, uh, w- who might be more involved in kind of tackling the, the cause of the climate change are not. Um, I think also the other thing is that there is a there's there's money to be made in the north, and that's where much of these contracts are. Um, whereas some of the poorest countries. Um, the kind of support we need needs more. It's, it's not going to be resolved by private finance. It's going to need um, public finance. Um, so I think there's also a, a distinction there. And you, the report states that the synergy is. You're just mentioning this, but I want to make sure that people know this from the report. The report finds that the synergy between fossil fuel companies and top border security contractors is also seen by the fact that executives from each se- sector sit on each other's boards. At Chevron, for example, the former CEO and chairman of Northrop Grumman. Ronald D. Sugar and Lockheed Martin's former CEO Marilyn Hewson are on its board. The Italian oil and gas company ENI has Natalie Tocci on its board, previously a special advisor to EU High Representative Magareni from 2015 to 2019, who helped draft the EU global strategy that led to expanding the externalization of EU borders to third countries. So how involved are these same people in the current UN Climate Change Conference COP26 in Glasgow. Globally, is the response to climate change being determined by CEOs around the boards of not only fossil fuel companies, but also the same surveillance and security companies that are securitizing our borders? Um, well, the reports I'm getting from Glasgow is that it's, they're very much present there. Um, they're present inside, inside the COP. These uh, executives are, uh, in fact, in my latest understanding is that the kind of civil society or kind of non-governmental, non-business groups only had only were allowed something like 34 in total into the kind of negotiated 34 people into the negotiating sp- um, space. So, uh, and there, there are these big, what, if you've ever been to one of these conference of big cops, um, these climate talks, they're very much dominated by. Um, Lots of businesses given their um, presentations about how green or sustainable they've become, um, and very little critical analysis about really whether it's greenwashing or, or whether it's actual real um, reduction. So they become a bit of a marketing space. It's a kind of trade show uh, for any company that wants to go, whether they're part of the problem or not, to market how green they are. Um, and very and and of course they're there with close contacts many of them have revolving doors with some of the uh, with some of the government departments who are neg- they're negotiating um, so there's much there is a very and, and this is typical as we know and your show is covered in so many other ways uh, of of politics in general that um, over the last uh, few decades under neoliberalism corporations have had increasing power and influence um, in determining government policy and that's and that's no different in terms of in terms of uh, climate change, um, so those certainly those who are most affected by the impacts um, are are excluded from these forums, and this time more than ever before. My understanding is this this may well be the one of the whitest, most privileged climate talks that have ever happened. Um, partly also because, of course, all the rules that have been imposed in terms of COVID, which have made it really either exorbitant or impossible for people from the global south to even attend and have their voice heard. The report also finds that in 2003, as you were mentioning earlier again, a Pentagon Commission report warned that in a worst-case climate scenario, the United States would need to erect defensive fortresses to stop unwanted starving migrants from countries like Guatemala and Haiti. 
the quote unquote fortresses are not proposed are not just proposed by Washington. They are prevalent across the world and led and financed by the world's largest emitters. These are the secure borders that politicians promise while insisting that there will also be proper treatment of migrants. In the United States, can you vote against secure borders? Is this secure border and surveillance policy bipartisan? It, it's it's very much bipartisan um, right now. I mean, we... We, we had another report which we looked at the electoral cycle in 2020, um, of course, with the run-up to the election of Biden, um, and we saw that um, the border industry, and, and through its individuals and through its high-level executives and through some of its political action committees, was given, was, gave, um, I forget the exact total, I think it was 40 million to candidates um, for, and for both parties. Um, and it was 55% to Democrats and 45% to Republicans, which is interesting because, of course, Trump ran very much on a kind of anti-migrant policy on border security, on border border militarization, and yet the border industry was actually given more money to, to Biden than to Trump. And I think that reflected basically the way that they have very much um, forged a bipartisan consensus on border militarization for both parties. And that's why we haven't some of the worst cruelties that were put through um, under Trump's regime have been ended, but largely the situation has not changed, um, as we saw most recently with the, with the uh, roundup of Haitian refugees who have been whipped um, by some of the border guards. Um, there's the, the basically a posture of, of violence and um, towards refugees and intensified border militarization is the policy that both parties are very much subscribed to, um, and I think we we need to um, we need to change the conversation really to look at um, how do we find a way to help those who want to stay and are forced to move to stay, um, and support those who are forced who who forced to forced to move um, to have a kind of a, a support a legal and a way to. Uh, find a new home and and be supported in that um, because the other the other policy as I've described is 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 a really one that's very very deadly in its impacts uh, and will not resolve the problem. It's it's about dealing with its consequences in, in a violent way, but it's not actually tackling what forces people to move in the first place. Returning to This Is Hell is Nick Buxton, co-author of the Transnational Institute report Global Climate Wall, How the World's Wealthiest Nations Prioritize Border Over Climate Action. You can follow Nick on Twitter at Nick Buxton. You can find out more about Nick at his website, nickbuxton.info. And you can find our past interview with Nick at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on his last name, Buxton, B-U-X-T-O-N. The report also finds that rhetorically, political leaders from the world's highest emitting countries are aware that the poor bear the burden of suffering. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, for example, says he knows that the, quote, consequences are falling disproportionately on vulnerable and low-income populations, and there are worsening conditions and human suffering in places already afflicted by conflict, high levels of violence, and instability. The report continues that, with such awareness, one might assume that U.S. national budgets reflect the will to alleviate the suffering Blinken describes. Instead, the United States and many of the other high-emitting countries pour increasing money into border and immigration enforcement rather than addressing climate change. Why the recognition without taking action? What explains the disconnect from recognizing the problem and doing anything about it? It's 
isn't that the <laughs> the big question of today? Because we have, a, of course, the same situation on climate change. If you hear on Glasgow at the COP and heard all the great speeches by Biden, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, um, there's no, there's no, there's not climate denialism that there is a that this isn't happening. Um, it's uh, and there's some and there's some there's some great rhetoric that we've got to act, that we've got to tackle the causes of this, that if we don't do it now, we'll pay bigger costs and consequences later. Um, but it's just not being matched by 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 the actual policies. Um, and and there's there is a huge there is a huge disconnect, and that's why there's a there's there's a growing movement of climate activists, you know, and, and really captured in that phrase that um, Greta Thunberg, the teenage activist, said that we 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 we've had enough of blah blah blah. We need some real policies, and that's that's really what we're seeing here in, on borders as well. It's it's a, a real disconnect um, between the awareness that this is not a rational way of dealing with the crisis, but the borders, uh, but both but the budgets, I mean, and the industry and a political system that is still very much so structurally tilted uh, towards benefiting corporate profits uh, to benefit to being run by particularly the financial industry. I haven't mentioned that in our talk, but and behind many of these border companies, we see the big financial firms like Vanguard and BlackRock funding many of them. Uh, they're stru- structurally uh, made and structured and structured in such a way that they can continue a policy that will 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 um, will exacerbate the problem right now. Um, and that's why we need some we need a real much more fundamental uh, reclaim of our democracy right now, um, away from one run uh, for the purpose of private profit towards one that can really work for the public good. Um, and that's why these kind of short-term or promises and military reforms won't work without this really deeper structural reform that we need. I saw a headline in yesterday's New York Times, and as soon as I saw it, Nick, I was like, I cannot wait to ask Nick and get his reaction from this headline. The headline was, Biden seeks boost in oil production while urging emission cuts. Is the difference between Republicans and Democrats that Republicans deny climate change and Democrats insist that we can somehow cut emissions while burning more fossil fuels, that something can be done while doing nothing? Yeah, I think that, that, that headline says it all. We had a similar one in Britain where Boris Johnson says it's one minute to midnight, and uh, he said just before catching his private jet back down to London, which is a, a train journey of four hours. Um, it's 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 exactly the same, and I think there is two forms of denialism, isn't there? There's denialism that says climate change doesn't exist, and there's denialism that says it does exist, uh, but we're not going to fundamentally change anything to do to tackle it or do anything about it, um, and that's what we're facing right now. Um, uh, but I think there's increasing people waking up. Um, the movements, particularly around the COP here, are, are more powerful and and more. Um, and, and being heard more than ever before. Um, and I think people are realizing that this, this disconnect cannot continue. Um, it's not just something that affects, is, is already playing out in our lives right now. It, we know it's gonna affect uh, generations to come. So um, we're, we're really getting to a crunch point where um, these, we have a choice, a choice ahead of us. Are we gonna continue to, to support an economic system that is perpetuating the crisis, so we're going to look for, um, I look to rebuild a system that actually can 
tackle some of the underlying causes of the, of the injustices that we see today and which will wreak havoc in the future. The report finds that with the advent of economic globalization in the 1980s and 1990s, governments understood that the forced implementation of structural adjustment and free trade rules would cause displacement, providing one impetus behind various border militarization operations in the U.S. in the mid-1990s. Free trade advocates understood neoliberalism and globalization would cause displacement, so they built walls. Can open markets survive open borders. For open markets to be successful, do they need closed borders? Does freedom of capital need to limit the freedom of human mobility? I think so. If you look at what the border regime does, it's it basically, there's, it's, uh, and this is how it works. I mean, on one level, if you're a rich businessman, you can travel across any border. It doesn't matter what nationality you have. If you have money, you can travel. Uh, so borders have become a way to kind of structure um, whose whose lives are worth it and, and, and structure labor markets. So it either determines that your life is expendable, um, in which case you, and, and that's what we see so much on borders, or it determines that your um, that your labor is exploitable, in which case, so, so to a certain extent, borders are also structured to allow and a whole undocumented force in who don't have rights, who can be exploited uh, for the labor. Um, and that's very much what we see, um, how border regimes work. They, they work to facilitate capital flows and to really control um, labor flows in a way that either makes you expendable or exploitable. So uh, you also find that uh, as scholars such as Betsy Hartman have emphasized it. this idea has historical roots in the Malthusian idea that population growth, most of all, if it happens in countries where the majority are not white, is the principal cause of scarcity, poverty, and war. This leads to the border securitization. She writes that it still resonates in both the public policy arena and popular culture. It shapes dominant discourses about the relationship between climate change, conflict, and security in Africa. This focus on migration or anywhere, and it has also fundamentally shaped migration policies everywhere. So the prevailing belief in border security is the Malthusian belief that food production will not be able to keep up with growth in the human population. It's the zero population growth crowd that believes that there are simply too many people or there could be and soon. How does a belief that there are too many people or there soon will be lead to securitized borders? Because I'm certain, I'm certain, Nick, that there are those who do believe in zero population growth who are listening right now that do not support border securitization? Well, I think, I think uh, I, I'm in, and it's interesting to see, we, we quoted that in terms of, we were looking at some of the national security narratives, and when you see the early national security na- narratives that paint migration as a threat, they talk about these, there's this one famous article that we quote in the thing of, um, which apparently was an article written by someone at the Atlantic that was shared across all the U.S. embassies at the time, which talked about these restless hordes um, who are just waiting to kind of cross borders. And it's very much this, um, and that's very much that drives um, a lot of racist narratives around migration that doesn't turn, that takes people from being individual humans with families, with lives, with very much similar dreams and aspirations that you and I have to a horde, a mass. We we see that all the time, not just in national security narratives, but often photos, even photos. You know, you all see a big picture of a crowd. Uh, You really see the one person and the story of the one person and their experience. 
Um, so that's that's very much, um, I think, uh, the, uh, one of the the, the narratives that is used um, and has long long existed, as we know from the richest countries. You know, the whole Malthusian uh, anti anti racist narrative very much emerged as as the rich countries um, became in, in colonial times became rich and needed ways to justify their exploitations. Um, and we see it very much alive alive today in the way that um, migration is described uh, and the policies that are then um, put through, um, which are very much a kind of militarized approach to to any, anything to do with people um, moving, no matter the causes or the consequences. The report also finds that speaking of the impacts on Europe under the scenario of 2.6 Celsius degrees temperature increase, the influential, an influential 2007 report warns that, quote, environmental pressures will accentuate the migration of peoples to levels that effectively change the ethnic signatures of major states and regions in Europe. The influx of illegal immigrants from northern Africa and other parts of the continent will accelerate and become impossible to stop except by means approximating blockade. There will be political tipping points marked by the collapse of liberal concepts of openness in the face of public demands for action to stem the tide goes on to say say that altruism and generosity would likely be blunted. So is this influential 2007 report that had a huge impact on decision making in the UK as well as in the US, is it predicting authoritarianism, totalitarianism, even fascism being likely? Is it even advocating for such levels of authoritarianism? Kind of ambiguous on that. I think it's it's certainly predicting it, and it's it's sort of sort of uh, uh, suggesting it as well, because its its approach is is to say that we need to strengthen our military. Well, who benefits when you when you constantly strengthen the most repressive parts of the state or the most authoritarian parts of the state? Um, uh, likely authoritarians or or parties in, in, inclined to more authoritarian responses. Um, and that's that's part of the problem. Is as they as they paint the picture, they are really suggesting only one solution, and that's a security solution. And and that's what we're seeing as a as a trend um, taking off throughout throughout the world. Right now, we've it's very much uh, playing out at the moment, as we see right at the moment on the Poland and Belarus um, border, um, and. Um, so yeah, so it's 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 a trend that's kind of both predicted and also partly um, caused by these kind of narratives and these kind of security planning, which really puts those structures in place that will that will provide that authoritarian response. The report finds that the leaders say all the right things, but offer no new financing nor board, uh, binding action plans to back up the words, nor even an acknowledgement that they are yet to deliver a promise of $100 billion a year in climate finance made back in 2009. The story of climate financing, as we have shown in this report, is one of broken promises, woeful neglect, over-reporting, and even increasing debt for the poorest countries as loans have been given instead of grants. Even if the wealthiest countries were to reach the goal of $100 billion per year, that is a woefully low amount of resources to address both what is needed and what should be expected from those most responsible for the world's accelerating climate change. How much more suffering are the wealthiest nations respond as the wealthiest nations response to climate change causing to those who have not contributed and are suffering the most through loans has the response only made the local economies and the lives of residents in areas that are being affected by climate change worse. 
yeah, through our through our response, we're 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 basically making a, a worse situation inevitable. Um, I mean, 100 billion was a very sm- a small uh, amount to be promised by the richest nations. Um, most analysis analysts who've looked at how much is actually needed, both to mitigate and to adapt to climate change, say we will need at least 10 times that um, to to start to tackle this. Um, and that, that sounds like a lot of money. Um, but if we look at, for example, um, that since COVID happened, and the richest countries have raised, uh, I mean, this is about six months ago, the figure of $15 trillion um, to cope with the impacts of COVID. Um, I mentioned earlier about the $2 trillion that goes towards military spending. Um, we know how many billions get um, put off into offshore accounts. Um, we know the way the tax um, taxes have fallen dramatically on, on the richest and on the corporations around the world. It's not, a, it's not a matter of, in the end, it's not a matter of um, there not being enough money. Um, we, T and I did a report that showed that we could easily raise, um, we could easily raise about nine trillion um, by just by 10 steps that we could take that would fill some of these financing gaps. Um, so, so there, there is the money there, and, and what, but it's not being mobilised. Uh, like I talked about, there's whole structures that kind of prevent that happening right now. Um, and what it does do is it worsens the situation. It makes it makes it makes the position for vulnerable people much more much more vulnerable. It's worse, and and the likely impacts of climate crisis to be much more extensive than they would be if we actually started to invest the money that we need to right now. How do you get people to no longer support the idea of secure borders? Because from our conversation, it sounds like secure borders is kind of just a racist dog whistle. So does the public clearly understand what border security means? Because you know, as you, you know this, one story of a migrant committing a crime, especially a violent, sensational crime, can undo the victimization of millions, if not tens of millions. How can this narrative of migrant fleeing climate change being more a threat than a victim when it takes when it takes only one sensational act to reinforce those fears? How can that idea of migrants as threat be overcome? dollar question which i'd love to know the know all the answers to um i think it's something we've been we're also grappling with you know why why is a victim being caught so successfully treated as a threat and 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 as a result becoming victimized twice over you know well that's effectively what's happening those who who are suffering the consequences of climate change for which they played no role in which they can't in which the region they played no role are now not only suffering the consequences, they're also uh, suffering, they're, they're being treated as a threat um, and victimized further. Um, and how do we, how do we turn that, that narrative around? I think it involves action on so many different fronts. Um, one of the things that we've been looking at particularly is, is the role of an industry that has perpetuated this narrative. Behind every narrative, every structure lies, lies structures of power. Um, and those are very much dominated by corporations. So that's been very much our focus. I think it involves a real um, transformation of media that needs to happen. I mean, you're you're one of, unfortunately, one of a few shows that kind of dig deep into to issues and, and start to unpack what's really happening, and there's very little of that happening 
and we know that the media is largely responsible for whipping up some of these some of these hysteria and when we have the media in very small number of hands uh, willing to do that then then we have uh, we, we we create these narratives which become uh, very powerful i think i think we have to kind of get underneath so those are two two areas i think that are very are very key i've talked about the need for kind of uh, political change you know once we need we need politicians we need parties that are responsive uh, to movements and and citizens much more than corporations um and and i think underneath it all we need to um take this picture of like of what we talk kind of big numbers into into personal stories there's a really interesting experience in australia where they where they where they were talking about um they were trying to change people's perceptions where um, Australia has a very and uh, has a government which has been very hostile and aggressive towards migrants and forces forces many who come to the country to live on in desperate circumstances on islands outside Australia and they 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 did this thing where they looked at they started to say what were the terrible conditions people faced and actually got a very uh, saw very little changes in polling but when they just showed they told the stories of the same people but what were their dreams what were their hopes as people what they what they planned to do when they were kids what they wanted to do when they were growing up and what their parents and their grandparents were like who inspired them and they and they did a campaign around that they they really their polling changed quite dramatically and it just shows that if sometimes we paint people as, as victims rather than just fellow humans um we can actually perpetuate the problem whereas if we actually see our commonality and see actually this person this person loves soccer just like i do and and supports the same team and and really wants to um get a career in the same thing that i want to do then we much more relate so that's i think that's part of the picture as well is is kind of bringing these um these bigger pictures down to kind of stories of of people that just like you and me who want to have a have a decent life want to love and be loved just two more questions for you nick the report finds that treating the victims of climate change as threats is a triple injustice those least responsible for the climate crisis are not only the most likely to be victims of climate change but are now regarded as threats if they migrate in order to survive the nature of security framing also obscures the complex reasons for migration and serves to distract from alternative approaches that would seek to support migrants to stay when they can and migrate if they must security approaches inevitably seek to consolidate existing and unjust systems of power rather than challenge them to build something new. So to what extent are these security approaches then an organized attempt by the wealthiest nations to stop any possibility of revolution, even global uprising against the market? Is capitalism threatened and its most ardent adherents are building walls to protect capitalists' way of living? Is, is border security an attempt by the G7 to not be held accountable for their role in plundering the world? Absolutely. I mean, it's like I said, we have this we have two choices at this moment in history uh do we um do we really tackle uh the causes which means some really fundamental issues around equity around injustice around who's been affected around the fact that the wealthiest countries are, are the biggest part of the problem right now um or do we or do we look at um or do we just respond to the consequences? And if you respond to the consequences, you're essentially saying, I want the status quo. It's, no matter how dangerous, 
no matter how deadly, no matter the human consequences, the status quo, the political system, the economic system that benefits a certain minority right now matters more. That's the choice that's been made. So that's so. And so border security is very much about that. It's saying that um, it's more important to it's it, it's more worth it to to just build our, up arms, uh, militarize against the consequences, uh, rather than tackle the causes. Uh, and that's and that's really the choice that's been that's been taken right now. Can we expect then more unfulfilled promises from COP26? At the moment, at the moment, yes. Um, I think, I think, um, where it goes in the next few years will really depend on on the growing climate movement, on on the growing mass movements that are, are building against it. Whether we can change that balance of power. Um, at the moment, it's not enough to change the structures of power that we're in. That that we're in at the moment. Um, there are shifts going, um, but it's it's still going to be um, very much at, at this point business as usual. We have been speaking with Nick Buxton. He is co-author of the Transnational Institute report, Global Climate Wall, How the World's Wealthiest Nations Prioritize Borders Over Climate Action. We've got one more question for you, Nick. Nick is founder and chief editor of TNI's flagship annual publication, State of Power. You can follow Nick on Twitter, at Nick Buxton. You can find out more about Nick at his website, nickbuxton.info. And you can search on his last name, Buxton, B-U-X-T-O-N, at our website, thisishell.com, and hear an earlier conversation that we had with Nick. One last question for you, Nick, and as you may or may not remember, our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. The report finds this divide between rhetoric and budgets on climate change can point us in the direction of solutions. One simple remedy is to take the money out of border militarization and immigration enforcement and put it into climate finance. The money could fulfill the $100 billion per year commitment without a need to over-report or to hide loans as financing. Does that mean there would effectively be no borders? Does Transnational Institute, or do you personally believe that we should end borders? I think long-term, that's... I'm, 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 I'm for a kind of an op- uh, not no borders, but an open borders policy that we would have. That's a, a long-term solution because I think long-term um, we need uh, people should have the right to move and to migrate and to be supported and to live dignified lives, and we shouldn't have a system, as I said, which is really built around either exploiting or making people expendable, whoever they are in the world. Um, that's that's a, that's that's my long-term vision, and and I think that's a kind of moral vision toward to head towards. Um, I think there are steps we can take towards that. I'm not saying that that's a world we can create um, overnight, but that's that's the vision that I aspire to, um, and I think it's a vision that already exists for quite a few people. Like I say, if you have wealth, you effectively live in a in a in a no-border world. I just want that world to be accessible to all. Um, And that's something we have to fight and struggle and move towards. Nick, thank you so much for being back on our show. I really appreciate it. Again, check out the report at the Transnational Institute website, Global Climate Wall, How the World's Wealthiest Nations Prioritize Borders Over Climate Action. Thank you so much for being back on the show. And you guys over at TNI are doing fantastic work. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for the invite, Chuck, and for the good conversation. Thank you very much, Nick. Okay, cheers. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because 
This is hell. If that conversation with Nick Buxton on the global climate wall made you mad or sad, gave you anxiety, was in some way enlightening to the point of deprogramming you from a previous belief or understanding you may have held, like we need border security, or made you feel more educated, or it made you realize that yes, this really is hell. Show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported This Is Hell. Remember, Without you, we got nothing, so thanks for your support. This week's question from hell is, okay, then you come up with a good question from hell. Okay, then you come up with a good question from hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. Either the winter cap or the trucker's hat or the coffee mug or the t-shirt or the tote bag or the face mask or the flash drive of the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century featuring dozens of interview views from the 2000s. You can choose whichever one you want, but you can leave your message or your answer right now to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message your answer to this week's question from hell to us on Twitter at thisishellradio. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff judges a costume contest. Richard, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell, which is again, okay, then you come up with a good question from hell. Yes, I do. Sweet. Jeff C., he makes a suggestion. Yes. How is sending flights of jets to a location far away good for the environment? It's not good for the environment. (laughs) Yeah, why couldn't they Zoom this? I don't understand. Why did we have to be doing Zoom throughout the pandemic, but they don't have to? Jeremy T. suggests... Conservatism has been deemed, quote, revolutionary because a few measly decades of PC culture. How do you remind people that conservatism is not and never will be revolutionary? Yeah, yeah. can it be, though? Like, I mean, a fascist revolution? Can that happen? Certainly. (laughs) Exactly. I'm not too sure there. Okay. Then you come up with a good question from hell. (laughs) Jeff G. suggests... What did your affinity group bring to consensus? <laughs> so silly. Borky B suggests two plus two equals question mark. <laughs> Mark C suggests, hey there, what's your major? God, that's so <laughs> gross. God, that sounds lecherous. Aaron D, he suggests. What will we do with the trillions of dollars Joe Manchin has saved us (laughs) from spending? (laughs) Nothing. Peter B. suggests, if everyone destroys one car, will we substantially slow down catastrophic climate change? (laughs) I'd say yes. Okay. Then, you come up with a good question from hell. Paolo. 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 S. Suggests, what is this week's question from hell? <laughs> That's what we're trying to find out. <laughs> Why do you think we're asking? <laughs> Rich H. Suggests, what's so funny? <laughs> Your stupid question from hell answer. <laughs> Kelly H. Now that we're all millionaires, who's making the donuts? <laughs> Krimsky Crackers suggests, do we have to record the interviews too? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Uh, let's see here. I got a few more. All right. Our PD, he makes a suggestion. 
Why does am I all tingly down there? <laughs> I think it's supposed to trying to say, why am I all tingly down there? But it came out, what does I am <laughs> tingly down there? It's brilliant. It is brilliant. Mason W. suggests, which critters will you befriend when society <laughs> collapses and we live in the woods? Cockroaches. Peter K. He suggests, what will you whitewash next? <laughs> and I hope that is only... In, re- in relation to the image that Alex posted with. It looks like Tom Sawyer and yes. somebody. Washing. Whitewashing a fence. Yes. Yeah. Um, Any more? Yeah, I can do one one or two more before okay. we uh, Get to move Jeffy. on. Yeah. Kuhn L. His answer, his suggestion is, how do you stop the demon on your butt from knocking you down and putting you on a hell rage? It's actually a hell ride, but sure, hell rage too. Yeah, unfortunately, it does sound like a hell rage. It does. He, uh, it does. <laughs> when he says that. Uh, I miss Wesley. Uh, Braden S., his suggestion is, what have I got in my pocket? <laughs> I don't want to know. I think the real question is, would you like to see what I have in my pocket? <laughs> I do not want to. <laughs> and with that, we'll uh, hold off till yeah. a little bit later. Well, uh, the rest of your answers to this week's question about following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at the same place. Again, patreon.com slash this is hell on Patreon this week. After that conversation with Nick on what little is being done about climate change and why, it's going to be hard to not talk about why we're completely screwed. This week, Senator Joe Manchin said he could not support funding for climate change because he did not want to pass that debt onto his grandchildren. But passing on addressing climate change, which will be far more destructive to his grandchildren's lives than any financial debt, that seems to be completely fine with Senator Manchin. He's actually more afraid of accounting ledgers than rising temperatures and coastlines with more extreme weather that actually displaces and kills people. Sure, we have the political choice to remove such people from office for now, but what choice do we really have when the resources and power are in the hands of those profiting from climate change, those who actually benefit from climate change? And why do they get to have private armies to protect their interests? But if we hired mercenaries to protect the victims of their pollution, that would be seen as inciting an insurgency, if not terrorism. So maybe I'll be talking about armed corporations that are devastating the planet. It's going to be hard not to. Or we'll go back up north to small-town America, which is rising up against legislation that would prohibit any restriction or limitation on Airbnb, the short-term rental app, that is ruining locals' peace and quiet. Or maybe somehow I'll talk about both our inability to do anything about climate change and small-town America's inability to do anything about the worst parts of the gig economy coming to their neck of the woods, because in reality... They're about the same thing. The power of money to subvert what is best for the people and what they think is best for themselves. We'll also be sharing a classic interview from our archives that is not available anywhere else. An interview from 15 years ago tomorrow with Robert Farley, who at the time was an assistant professor at the Patterson School of Diplomacy and International Commerce at the University of Kentucky. Robert is now a senior lecturer there. He is also a founder and editor of the blog... Lawyers, Guns, and Money, which you can find at lawyersgunsmoneyblog.com. 
He was on back then to talk about his American Prospect piece, Still the Right War. What about Afghanistan? Which was posted on November 4th, 2006. The column was subtitled with the question, in light of the Iraq debacle and the resurgence of the Taliban, should we reassess the wisdom of the other post-9-11 war? This was back when pundits like even John Stewart were unfortunately referring to the war in Afghanistan as the right war. Robert's most recent book is 2020's Patents for Power, Intellectual Property Law, and the Delusion of Military Technology, which came out on the University of Chicago Press, and I'm kind of surprised that we missed it to have Robert back on the show to discuss his book, Patents of Power, Patents for Power, which sounds pretty fascinating. But if you want to hear me talk about our inability to do anything about climate change or gig economy and a conversation on how the war in Afghanistan was never the right war, subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live every Friday and is podcast shortly after at the same place. Patreon.com slash this is hell live from Hangover Country. This is hell. And Richard, I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. You get a trophy, and you get a trophy. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. When I have one of those bullshit jobs, I perform as if born to the work. That is, if anyone's watching. But a job position is a character one puts on at the beginning of the day and takes off at the end. And the worse the job, the shoddier the disguise, and the quicker it rips, loses buttons, disintegrates until I am indecently revealed as an imposter. I don't respond well to commands. I would emphatically not be a good soldier. I wish everyone else in the world would say the same. Aspiring to be a good soldier, not admirable. Might be necessary at any given point in history to be a soldier, and of course, one ought to do the best one can within any circumstance one finds oneself enmeshed, but that's entirely different. The value of being a good soldier for the sake of soldiering itself, obedience itself, and hierarchy honoring Bushido or esprit de corps themselves is nil. Nil. Nil, I say. Nada. Not. Nothing. Nevertheless, I soldier on as a soldier in the Socialist Leisure Party, a party that esteems soldiering even lower than I do, despite myself being the party's leader. I am a worse leader even than I am a soldier. Even worse... I'm not a revolutionary. I'm on the fence. That's right. I said it. I'm on the fence and proud. I might join the revolution if it appeals to me. Right now, most of the revolutionaries I'm encountering do not impress me as people able to prevent their revolution from being hijacked by those with destructive designs. And by destructive, I mean destructive of life on the planet. Some might see my position as just an excuse not to take up the difficult struggle against the structure that exploits most people around the world. Maybe so. But right now, it's a strategy to avoid following pointless commands and being coerced into doing BS jobs. It's a nice fence I sit on. I like the view. It's not the luxury fence that the name of my party might lead folks to expect, but it is an aspiration for the future, that luxury fence. 
And all of, in the future, all luxury will be public. Palaces and museums, currently private libraries, the castle Jimmy Page lives in, all privatized hot springs, Beyonce and Jay-Z's Basquiat, the whole of Vatican City, all lands currently controlled by any religious body, Samuel Alito's baby skull collection, and anything Elon Musk has will be ours, plus his head and genitals to be paraded through the public square on a Brazilian barbecue sword and sacrificially burned. If you're your revolution has different goals, then of course I'm not going to jump off the fence and be part of it, no questions asked. Let's hear at least an elevator pitch of some of the goals. And don't say worker control of the means of production. There's more to life than work and production. It fucking better be. It's a fine first principle, but wither from there. What about non-productive wealth in every form? No one needs their own palace to conduct affairs of state, and allocating such property to oneself is counter-revolutionary and selfish. I don't expect every leader to be a selfless, altruistic ascetic, especially when capitalists still hold the majority of the means of destruction. But revolutionary leadership, if one arrogates to wield it, must exhibit some meaningful difference from that which it replaces. It must arrogantly exemplify to capitalism visceral, visible aspects capitalism is incapable of either denying or displaying. It must visibly spit into capitalism's face what capitalism cannot inhabit in even a superficial way because it threatens their discourse of power. Without such public humility on the part of those who would govern, the people can never truly consent to be governed. Without their consent, all power from above is colored by coercion, disobedience punishable by starva star <clears throat> starvation, or exposure, or imprisonment. More substantially, if your politics does not ultimately center fighting against the ongoing climate pollution and extinction disaster and the criminalization and exploitation of the cruelty toward and the stripping of dignity from poor people around the world, I'm going to assume that it's ultimately motivated by selfishness. Complaining about how many government regulatory obstacles there are to your making money by Airbnb being part of your property does not promise a positive political position. Complaining about what mental midgets your students are and how liberal-dominated public education has failed them without seemingly ever having taught a population you don't see as examples of such stunted minds demonstrates more about your ego, intolerance, and lack of ability to connect with others in a caring way than it does about the real abilities or potentials of those you perceive as beneath you. Or maybe you're just addicted to complaining. Believe me, I get that. Likewise, enabling hawks of privatization to commandeer the prevailing discourse, whether through inaction or by weak or conciliatory action, is ultimately selfish, and also, likewise, refusing to support popular movements of the poor to alleviate their own poverty. Arguing for and giving material support to the poor are steps toward revolution, and refugees are by definition poor, and the selectively over-policed are by definition poor, and the concerns of poor, the poor, <clears throat> and the concerns of the poor are by definition revolutionary. You may believe one single highly motivated Highly motivated Superman or junta of Superman can always do better without input from the rabble. But the more you chip away at the commons and take power and wealth away from the people who will inevitably have to live with the consequences of the Superman's actions, the farther you take humanity from a decent society. Of course, I come at these concerns as an artist and a pervert and an art lover. 
and a pervert lover. I am not going to relinquish these concerns and loves, and I don't see them as selfish or counter-revolutionary. I see them as integral to the project, as integral as Emma Goldman believed dancing was. I am the dancing bug. Look upon my glittering carapace, ye mighty, and despair. Or, you know, kill me when the time comes. If you're really in a position to imminently transform the current world into one with an egalitarian economy and a responsible relationship with the environment, and I'm an obstacle to that, please kill me. Incidentally, Please Kill Me is the title of a famous book about the L.A. punk scene. This entire tirade, then, is a callback to last week's complaints about Exene Cervenka and other musical celebrities' betrayals of the people's interests. Exene Cervenka's name makes me wonder why she didn't start her own band and call it Cervex. What a missed opportunity. Unlike me, there are a lot of perverts out there who think it's fine to miss opportunities to make positive change. So all I ask is, if you decide I must be disposed of to make way for the new world, please kill them first. But remember, if any of my Jeremiah has struck you as harsh, we are even now completing our yearly passage through the season of the dead. During this season, some of us wear costumes, some of us to honor the dead, some of us to mock the living or the quasi-living. Costumes, of course, are superfluous because our very incarnations are costumes. Our identities ourselves are costumes. This is where egalitarianism begins and ends. And I don't care who thinks it's liberal, touchy-feely foolishness. Each of us deserves a participation trophy in the costume party contest of existence. You, too, are already a winner. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. I forgot to take advantage of the opportunity last week to remind you, if I haven't told you in the past, and remind listeners who may have heard the story that I, uh, I, I one time I, I choked Exine Zervenka. You, you what now? I Excuse me? I choked Exine Zervenka. On what? With what? How did that come about? I was doing security at an X show in, uh, East Lansing, Michigan. The opening <laughs> band. Uh, they did. We didn't know who the opening band was. All we knew is that they were they were the replacements. Like they were, you know, to be determined. But that was actually uh, the name of the band was the replacements. Oh, the replacements. <laughs> it was actually the replacements. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so anyway, while the replacements are on stage, <laughs> they tell me, you know, hey, if any nobody's supposed to come through this door, either way, people can't go in or out of this door. So we want you to be on the other side of this door. So I couldn't see the band. I could only hear them in this like dark space where you couldn't there was no lights and there you were just like make sure nobody comes through this door and so all of a sudden another door down the hallway opens up there's like a you know bright light coming through my eyes are mm -hmm. having trouble you know adjusting and there's a whole bunch of short women coming <laughs> towards me and i don't know what to, i'm like hey hey you can't come through here and they're like yell at me or something and i'm like no you gotta stop and so i just went to go reach for this one woman i didn't know who it was and because she's so short <laughs> my hands went right at her throat oh god and i went oh my god and i like backed up really quick and i was like you know i was like i'm sorry i'm so sorry but you can't come through this door and she said do you know who i am and i said i can't see you we're it's we're in the dark i have no idea who you are so i opened up the door <laughs> And I was like, I don't know if that's Exene Zervenka or a lookalike or what, but I'm just going to let her go through. <laughs> so I let her go through. And after the show, I had to apologize while I was getting drunk with the replacements. 
Oh, uh, hey, wow. Where where was this? <laughs> East Lansing, Michigan. What what Michigan, auditorium? Uh, Michigan State Hall. It was in McDonald Kiva. It was in a you know a lecture hall. Very cool. Well, let me tell you about my screw up this morning. All right. Did you? You might have heard me. <laughs> you might have heard me say, uh, "Come out live over there, saying, turn him up." Yeah, yeah. Nick, turn Nick. Up. That was you. Oh. That was that was me. But the the stupid thing was, uh, I was listening through. <laughs> I thought that was Alex. I didn't know it was you. That's funny. <laughs> I was listening through. Uh, uh, to, through Zoom, right? But he was on skip, so so like, I I didn't hear him. I didn't hear Nick at all. Yeah, and I don't. I'm think like, he, how can he be listening to silence? Yeah, and I don't think he heard you saying, "Turn him up." Pretty <laughs> certain that didn't. <laughs> but he could hear you. Yeah, but for some, and I know that that's not going to appear on the actual radio show on WNUR because Alex will probably edit it out. Though it was very, oh, man. it was very entertaining. Well, now we're talking about it. Live radio is better. No one's Bumper stickers know. should be issued. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right. Yes, Jeff. indeed. Yes. Until next. Oh, time. let me just say one. Oh, yes. One thing. Yes. I must tell you, I am broadcasting from the house where I am dog sitting uh, of the director of Waterboy and the Wedding Singer. <laughs> <laughs> Two movies that did not need sequels. And didn't get them. And didn't get them. <laughs> Rightly so. <laughs> so you are at Adam Sandler's house right now? No, no, no. The director. <laughs> not so, the star. <laughs> you're telling me that Adam Sandler didn't direct those movies? Well, yes, I am. I'm very disappointed to hear that. I'm very sorry. He has misrepresented himself entirely. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Somehow. <laughs> yes, dear. <laughs> Until next time, could you <laughs> yeah. steal me a... I'm sure there's got to be boxes of DVDs of Waterboy and The Wedding Singer. So could you just send one of those boxes over here? We'll give them away as gifts. Um, well, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Until the next time. Yeah. Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people. This is hell. The question from hell is, okay, then you come up with a good question from hell. Okay, then you come up with a good question from hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins... Whatever your choice is of This Is Hell merchandise that you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Richard, please share with us the rest of our listeners' answers to this week's question. Yes, here we go. Mark S. suggests, where can I hire, where can I hire these invisible, quote, illegal immigrants? Oh, God. Warren L. suggests, why do we subsidize tobacco farmers at the same time as we fund anti-smoking ads? And somebody actually gives an amazing response. Mark gives an amazing response. Um, What does that say there? Okay, hold on. I didn't really look at those. No, just his response to it is really interesting. Yes, because 111 years ago in December, some tobacco farmers started shooting the tobacco warehouse owners for colluding on tobacco prices. The tobacco war started in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and spread through the South till old Teddy Roosevelt and Howard Taft stepped in to do some, quote, trust busting, which later led to outdated tobacco subsidies. Isn't that crazy? Tobacco wars. Who knew? I can't. Thank you, Mark, for following up on the other response to the question from hell. Got any more? Yes, I do. Okay. Okay. Then you come up with a question from hell. David S. 
suggests who do you like to stop Trump in 2024? Holly or Cotton? Ugh. Neil C. suggests, where's the escape hatch? <laughs> Sarah M. suggests, why is a raven like a writing desk? And Chuck, this is a reference to Alice in Wonderland. Apparently, I have no idea what that reference was. The Mad Hatter asked the question, and then quite a bit time later, never answered the question. Ah. And Alice chastised them for wasting all of their time. Oh, crazy. <laughs> no idea. And lastly, our uh, Jeffrey answers or suggests, does all this extra blubber make me look fat? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> that's just a yes or no question. So, I mean, that's not a very good question from hell, Jeffy. Well, let me just double check here. Um, well, oh, Pete has a better answer okay. or suggestion. He says, uh, does my ass look fat in these pants? <laughs> yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> so the answers I liked most were David saying, if a question from Al is proposed on Facebook, but no one is around to read it, does it make a sound? Aaron saying, what will we do with the trillions of dollars Joe Manchin has saved us from spending? Michael saying, why? Dan saying, with inflation, approximately how many suckers are currently born every minute? Which is fantastic. And Issa's answer to this week's question from hell, okay, then you come up with a good question from hell, is what work will you outsource to the internet? Hive mind. That makes this week's winner Issa, who responded again, what work will you outsource to the internet? Hive mind. My answer to this week's question from hell, okay, then you come up with a good question from hell. There's absolutely no way. I'm coming up with a good question from Al. I, outsour I outsourced that work to Alex years ago, and I don't want to start doing that work again. That's why my favorite answer to this week's question from Al, and this week's winner is Issa saying, what work will you outsource the internet hive mind? Apparently the question from hell, I outsourced it once to Alex, and now Alex is outsourcing it to all of you. Issa Congratulations on winning this week's question from Hell. You have won whatever your choice is of This Is Hell merchandise. Everybody can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Richard, do we have anyone scheduled yet for next week's shows? Yes, we do. Oh. We have, uh, we have uh, someone lined up for Monday. Who's that? And uh, Checking. Why can't I find it? Checking. Here my, uh, Checking. TIH notes. I know it's in there. Morning notes. Oh my god. Oh, hold on. That's weird. It disappeared off my email. Oh, that's crazy. Here, you keep looking while I tell everybody what, right. what happened this week. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. And this week's hangover cure is the worst thing you can say to someone who is suffering from a hangover, which is, you shouldn't drink so much you get hungover. Thanks to this week's guests, including Alessandro Delfanti, author of The Warehouse Workers and Robots at Amazon. Alessandro teaches digital media at the University of Toronto and University of Toronto, Mississauga. He's also author of 2013's Biohackers, The Politics of Open Science. Follow Alessandro on Twitter at Adelfanti. Find out more about Alessandro at delfanti.org. And thanks to today's guest, Nick Buxton, co-author of the Transnational Institute Report, Global Climate Wall, How the World's Wealthiest Nations Prioritize Borders Over Climate Action 
Foundation, which is part of TNI's Border Wars series, of which Nick is a co-coordinator of research. You can follow Nick on Twitter, at Nick Buxton. You can find out more about Nick at his website, nickbuxton.info. Did you find out who's on Monday? Yeah, sorry. I opened up a wrong email from last week, and it was... Confused. Yes, it was. So on Monday, we have engineer Nick Chavez on his article, The Present and Future of Engineers. Sweet. Brooklyn Rail. That sounds exciting. What about Tuesday? Nothing else for... The whole week? Quite quite yet, yes. Okay. But Jeff Dorchin will be back with a moment of truth next Wednesday, of course. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing this week. Thanks to Richard Norwood and Jess Lipka for running the board. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth and Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in rotten history. Special thanks to Theron Humiston because, just because. Thanks to all of you for tolerating me taking Tuesday off as my home was invaded by cockroaches, followed by exterminators, and it was a disaster. Guess what? They found black mold in my building. Isn't that great? That's great. Maybe that's why my throat has been hurting for two solid months and why I'm going to the doctor in a couple weeks. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishellwinnell. Somehow be connecting what's happening in Glasgow at the UN Climate Summit to what's happening in small-town America's fight against Airbnb. And we'll also be sharing a 2006 interview with law and diplomacy scholar Robert Farley on Afghanistan not being the right war, as so many conservatives and liberals alike were saying back in 2006. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gaff radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lowest position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>